Hello, I'm Philip Morris and I'm joined tonight by David Haves Havard. Good evening. And our special guest tonight, Gethin Morris. Hello. To discuss the latest in science news and scepticism. These conversations used to happen over a drink in our local pub, but the idea came about to bring these musings to the world of the Tinterweb in the form of a podcast. And of course, we're still accompanied by a drink or two. Welcome to a Skeptic's Night In. Hi guys. Hey Phil, how's it going? Not too bad, we're a bit late recording this week. Uh, yeah, a little bit hoarse. I lost my voice in the middle of the week, so uh, uh, just recovering from, from that. Uh, we're just going to take a couple of minutes to introduce our special guest tonight, Gethin Morris. Geth, tell us a bit about yourself. I'm, I'm your brother, and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you that's are. One, yeah. That's one of the things. Um, yeah, so I'm Phil's brother, so that's why he's got me on. I did science in GCSE level. I think that was the last time I did anything with science, other than talking <laughs> to you boys in the pub. Uh, the most sciencey thing I do at the moment is musical. So I'm in a band called Beware the Tortoise. We're a metal band, five-piece metal band. And uh, yeah, gigging as much as possible. We're playing in the Kaya Festival on Saturday, which is in Port Talbot. Margham Park in Port Talbot. Uh, it's it's going a shame, on shameless weekend, plug there, Gath. Shameless plug. I know, I know, but I have to <laughs> try and get fan. Um, <laughs> Most of we have the same. Like we have the same 60. problem. Yeah, we have the same problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what was that, Geth? Saturday the eighth in Port Talbot. The, the weather. <laughs> August. Yeah, that's it. Um, Port Talbot, Margan Park. We're playing on the Afran stage, which is the Youth Cymru stage, seven till eight. Come down for a mosh. <laughs> so what are you? Uh, what are you like to drinking tonight then? Uh, I am drinking Staropramen. It's a Czech oh, lager. That's a good lager. It is a I nice like lager. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Um, it's part of the Carlsberg consortium, I suppose. But yeah, really nice lager, and it's nice and cheap in Tesco. So, <laughs> well, uh, I'm I'm on um, Man's Brown Ale, the original brown ale, apparently. What brown ale? Man's. Sounds good. Is it as good as Newkey Brown? Um, I'd be honest with you, I've never tried it before, and I haven't had a sip yet. But um, I'll, I'll <laughs> have a sip, and I'll tell you. Alright. <laughs> Have's what well, you I'm, want. I'm drinking. I'm drinking two lagers tonight. Two lagers. Um, yeah, as the Canadians and the Americans would say, I'm double fisting. <laughs> so, I've, so I've got um, Singer, which is a Thai lager, lager, and I've also got Sing Tao, which is a Chinese lager. And the ingredients are literally just water, malted barley, hops, and rice. Yeah, but it's no. made in China. That's what they would say. <laughs> <laughs> but the Thai beer doesn't have the uh, ingredient. Oh, by the way, oh, I've yeah. just tried this man's brown ale. It's good. It's weak, though. It's like 2.8%. But <laughs> The question on everyone's lips, though, Gath, is it hoppy? Um, it's very hoppy, mate. You'll quite like it. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, good. <laughs> Last month, NASA scientists announced the discovery of Kepler-452b, also being referred to as Earth 2.0. So, Kepler is a space observatory launched by NASA in 2009 to discover Earth-like planets. And this Earth-like planet has been uh, found... 1,400 light years away from us within our solar system. So the Kepler-452b is approximately 60% larger than the Earth, so it's about five times larger, and it has an estimated two times the gravitational pull. So we could actually live on, and it orbits its sun every 385 days, so just 20 days longer than us. But these calculations of mass is a very rough estimate for exoplanets. Yeah, I mean, how do they how do they find exo when they find exoplanets using Kepler? They have to look at the light coming from the star. Is that is that how they found this one in particular? There are two methods. One is by transit, so the planet will pass between the sun and the earth, and this will create like a very low dip in the light levels and we can read that. Or there's there's another method where the sun wobbles and the amount it wobbles 
by, you can tell if something's orbiting it and kind of how... Calculate the mass from that as well, yeah. Yeah. The star, called Kepler-452, is... Such a good name. ...1.5 billion years <laughs> older than our sun. I know, that it really catchy, isn't it? It's 1.5 billion years older than our sun, so about 6 billion years old, and it has roughly the same mass, roughly the same diameter, and around 20% um, higher luminosity. So like, um, you know how our our sun has got a lifespan of however many million billion years it is? Would that with the Kepler star yeah. have the same lifespan? Yeah, it would because it's the exact same type it's the and same class type of star, our star. Yeah. yeah, so the our star <laughs> is called a G two V type, and uh, Kepler four five two is the same type. So it should have the same lifespan. Yeah, but what, what they're saying is the luminosity is higher because it's slightly older. So it just means that it was formed uh, i think 1.5 billion years prior to the birth of our uh, solar system so it'd be pointless going to uh, kepler 452b because but, uh, like it'll die out earlier because the star's going to engulf it right well the thing is the we would distance. we would never we would never be able to visit it anyway really because <laughs> it's quite far if you away take, yeah because if you take the fastest object we've ever sent out into space which is the the voyager even if you went as fast as them it would take around 24 million years to get to this planet at that speed <laughs> yeah so it's yes yeah, 1400 yeah, light years <laughs> yeah you yeah so nice there, actually that's what they actually say holiday pay yeah yeah <laughs> definitely so even traveling at the speed of light it would take over a thousand years to get there so it's not known whether this planet is a rocky planet or a small gas planet but based on its small radius it uh, is reasonable as a reasonable chance of being a rocky planet and it would most likely to be a super earth with uh, loads of active volcanoes because of its higher mass and density. It's not clear at the moment whether it could host a habitable environment. Because they think that the uh, the increased luminosity of the sun means that the planet itself is moving out of the habitable zone. So you know where Venus is in our solar system? It's just on that border between where the habitable zone is. What happens is there was a runaway greenhouse effect on Venus where all the water vapour basically evaporated and you've got sulphurous fumes and all sorts of things going on in the atmosphere there. And they think it's possible that this planet could have a similar sort of thing going on with it because of where it is in reference to the habitable zone of the system. This new planet has it's been in the habitable zone for billions of years. And according to John Jenkins from um, the NASA's Amos Research Centre, he said that this means it's possible that life could uh, exist on the surface, or at least could have at some point in history. And what you say about the runaway greenhouse effect, it's, it's, it's an interesting point. Because it's a rocky planet, and it's likely to have these multiple volcanoes spewing up CO2 and sulfur into the atmosphere and creating these thick clouds that it's very possible that could have been subject to a runaway greenhouse effect similar to that on Venus. Bummer. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a cool discovery, but it's only the sixth most Earth-like exoplanet known mm. today. Haven't they also so, released uh, 11 others that could be sort of similar type to Earth as well? Yeah, they, they come out with these every single year, these new exoplanets and these new sort of Earths. And that's really because it was launched in 2009 and it takes 
multiple years to be able to say, oh yeah, that's an exoplanet, because they need multiple orbits of the planet to occur until they can say with any certainty whether that's an exoplanet and to gauge its mass and yeah, all these things. So I think in the next five, ten years, we're going to be getting loads and loads of these. And I think eventually, within I think within the next ten years, we'll find a identical Earth. How do we know that it will be an exoplanet and not just a really big space station? <laughs> Like the uh, Death Star. Like the Death Star, yeah. Thanks for keeping up. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> That's the million dollar question. Is if there was life on this Kepler thing, they know how to use the Force. <laughs> wow, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Only the dark side. I tell you the first time I heard about it, I was watching Formula One and they started talking about on Kepler, whatever, Honda has still got problems. Um, Force India are like amazing, but uh, Honda still shit. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love in Formula One they made a reference to a recent yeah. scientific discovery. <laughs> so recently a new species of feathered dinosaur has been discovered in China. The almost complete skeleton is the largest dromaeosaurid, which is a feathered theropod, uh, to be discovered to date, measuring approximately two metres in length. Named... <laughs> Let's give this a go. Zen Wang Long, which means Zen Wang Dragon, because Zen Wang was the bloke who discovered it. Uh, this dinosaur provides the first evidence of modern, modern day feathers on a large theropod dinosaur. The creature essentially had long tail feathers and wings, but only very short forearms, uh, meaning that the wings would not have been used for flight. So it does beg the question, why did these animals evolve feathers in the first place if they couldn't fly? Uh, there's a couple of hypotheses floating about. Wing-assisted incline running is one where the animal uses its wings to provide a bit of lift to run faster uphill, um, which I do like as an idea, but it does seem a bit niche as a function for an animal to evolve. Um, I guess there are probably a whole host of aerodynamical considerations associated with flightless movement. But the consensus amongst re- researchers seems to be that the dinosaur used... Uh, used its plumage to attract mates like a peacock would. They didn't find the end of its tail though, so they can't really say if the dinosaur had like a tail fan like a peacock at this stage, but it is pretty That'd cool. Be awesome. Yeah. It could be many reasons really. Yeah. As you said, it could be like for selective breeding like mm. you know, peacocks have. Or yeah, yeah, or it could be something to do with aerodynamics whether it's <laughs> jumping, running or whatever. Yeah, there's a whole load of things. I mean, if it had these basic wings, for example, and it needed, I don't know what sort of terrain it lived in, for example, if it was jumping off something, it could sort of, you know, like a cat, when it jumps off a building, it has this sort of, it sort of floats down rather than falls, which is why cats can jump from really high places. So it could have the same sort of... But that's because, that's, well, no, but that's because they're small. It's not because, like... No, they also, no, they do also have a, um, they do also have an aerodynamical thing that slows them down as they fall. I've actually so read though. I've got on. new, new, um, new evidence, or whatever, of this new dinosaur. It was a super sniffer, genuine. A super sniffer. It had like an epic nose, apparently, that helped it track uh, prey in the dark. So how how do they know that? He had a look at the skull fragment, and it had an enlarged structure in the forebrain, known as the olfactory bulb. How do you know about olfactory bulb? The dinosaur bulb? has a sharp sense of uh, spell, smell. Yeah, apparently. the effect. The olfactory bulb is essentially where smell gets processed. So you get these things that go up the nose attached to receptors, and that sends signals to the olfactory bulb, which will kind of analyze it and then give you the sense of smell, essentially. And so presumably, yeah, when they when they when they find that out in the uh, that's the skull cavity they're looking at as well. Yeah, I'm not quite Assume sure from how there. they would do that. I mean, yeah. the olfactory bulb is quite low 
down. I mean, it's right behind kind of the bridge of your nose, I suppose. Uh, so maybe there would be some sort of cavity there where the olfactory bulb sits. Because mm, there'd certainly be no tissue there to look at. I mean, this is what's confusing me, though, right? Because I've read a couple of things, and one of them does say the new dinosaur found in China, whatever, and there's a picture of it, uh, which is that one that you mentioned a minute ago. I can't remember the name of. Zwen Wan Long. Yeah, apparently he had a super sniffer. and that, But I've read it on... Th- and then, But on this other one with this guy, it just sort of says that he was looking at some fossils in his in his lab or his uh, museum and went, oh, that's not the dinosaur it used to be. Yeah, that does happen, though. That um, that sort of thing does happen, where they find um, things that have been stored away for ages, and they get out and they think, oh, that's been misclassified. You know, that that's not actually one of these, it's one of these sort of things. So that, that sort of thing does happen as well. But uh, what type of, what family was it in with this new dinosaur, uh, do they reckon? It's a theropod. Is uh, that similar to Velociraptor? Yeah, um, they, they're often called raptors and ah, because okay. people know what the raptors are obviously from Jurassic Park mm. but yeah they're, they're theropod dinosaurs basically the, the ones that uh, walk on two legs um, and basically ah, right. they evolved from uh, the birds evolved from them so T-Rex Velociraptor what about uh, the iguanodon? Well, it's uh, not. But no, it's a, not a theropod, theropod though. No, it's an yeah. ornithopod. But yeah, because yeah, because it doesn't go around <laughs> on two feet, but it can go up on two feet to kind of like reach into trees or whatever. Yeah, stab dinosaurs with its thumb. Yeah, it did stab. Well, according to the magazine we had, anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be fair, it has massive thumbs. Mm-hmm. It does. Like, There's one in the. Um, Natural History Museum in London. Skeleton yeah, it's, it. it's really good. Actually, the whole dinosaur section in the National History Museum was really good. I recommend it to anyone. It's free to get in. So, uh, well, me and uh, me and Habs went down there once. Uh, if you remember, Habs. Yeah, it was good. We just couldn't get in. There was the queue for the dinosaur bit was massive. But I've been there a couple of times when it wasn't so busy, and uh, it, it, is, it is a treat. I have to come again at some point. I won't mind seeing that. So a couple of weeks ago at the U.S. Alzheimer's Association International Conference in Washington, D.C., where essentially it's just a conference where scientists come together and talk about their research within Alzheimer's and aging, I'm assuming. So there's been a flurry of exciting results from new drugs for Alzheimer's disease that were announced at this conference. And uh, I'm going to be talking about some of the drugs that are kind of the most exciting and we will see sort of the new drugs that are coming out. So although other drugs are showing huge promise, an antibody called, uh, now it's my turn, Zolanezumab. Okay, that's an enzyme, and that's attracted most of the attention. It failed an 18-month trial, but then they extended the test for a further two years, and they were, and it was found that the brains and memories of people with Alzheimer's who were taking the drug deteriorated more slowly than people without the drug or people with a placebo. However, these uh, latest results have been greeted with caution and it actually triggered a fall uh, a fall in the company's share price because the improvements in people taking the drug were only slight and the full details of this new drug on Alzheimer's systems won't be known until another large trial is completed and that's being completed by next year. So what's all the fuss about it if improvements were only slight? Okay, so does solanezumab work in a special way? And the answer is not really. So it's an antibody that targets beta amyloid, which um, causes Alzheimer's. Which So people with Alzheimer's, they have these things called beta amyloid plaques, which are these build-up of beta amyloid, and this kills uh, neurons, basically. Uh, I read an article in New Scientist. The pharmaceutical company Neurophage in Cambridge, Massachusetts, are poised to apply for permission to start 
testing in people because they've had really good success with rats and monkeys no, using one. a certain drug. It's a different I'm, drug I'm, because I'm this one targets about, about people here. this particular drug that they've they've thought about uh, targets beta amyloid plaques, uh, but is effective in monkeys and rats anyway in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and CJD. Yeah, it's supposed to unravel the the plaques that uh, build up. Although they're not really sure whether or not if you unravel the plaque, you'll reverse the damage. Um, yeah, I, don't, I doubt you'd be able to reverse the damage. No, it's all the about. There's no treatment for Alzheimer's, but you can stop it from happening, essentially, or, or stop it getting worse. You said, like, CJD was one of the things you said. I don't really know what that is. Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, or you'll probably know it better as mad cow disease. Uh, well, it's not actually mad cow disease, I don't think, it, but it's, it's similar. Well, I know it's a prion disease, but I thought the Krebs-Jacobs disease came from eating um, human flesh. Well, who's doing that? <laughs> who's doing uh, that? People in, like, people in Papua New Guinea. What? <laughs> okay. I'm not going there on it. <laughs> well, it's certainly a prion disease, which what mad cow disease is. So maybe it's the overreaching disease of all of these things. Okay, so mad cow disease is a type of CJD, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. and and it's caused by a, a prion. Basically, yeah, prions are just these proteins that replicate and f- cause damage by doing that basically similar to these amyloid um, beta amyloid proteins then yeah but cjd it causes the brain tissue to degenerate rapidly so alzheimer's can be quite slow degeneration but cjd seems to be quite fast but it's, it's, it's a sort of similar thing yeah and so what are the other drugs out there so Apparently, one of the dark horses that emerged this week is called a, a drug called azelaragon. Rather than attacking plaque, it reduces brain inflammation, which is a factor that's now firmly linked with the development of Alzheimer's. So after 18 months on this drug, people rated their own symptoms as declining significantly less than those taking a placebo. You know, I, I kind of take those sort of studies with a pinch of salt where people are rating their own symptoms, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it's significant. It significantly declined less than those taking a placebo, so at least it's controlled there. It's but a little bit difficult when you're when you're talking about things like Alzheimer's to define the symptoms because you're talking about people forgetting various things without doing it qualitatively, qualitatively like that. How can you really assess whether the symptoms have abated or not well, without, I, without I having them to classify themselves? Well, different researchers will use different methods. Personally, I think the best method would be take like a multiple multiple test approach. So what you do, you'd get you test them cognitively. So you test things like memory work. I see. Memory, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, verbal fluency, all that sort of stuff. So you can get this cognitive profile of them to see whether they're better or lower than average, and see how fast their symptoms are progressing. But you also um, add in self questionnaires. So you're asking them to rate their symptoms, but then you also ask their family mm. who kind of see these changes in them. And so you take this multifaceted approach to get sort of the best idea on their symptoms worsening or getting better or whatever. Well, that's hopeful anyway. I mean, it's a horrible disease, Alzheimer's, so hopefully we can find some sort of treatment for it that's more effective than what we've got at the moment. Yeah, so so are we, are we getting close? So... 
A hundred trials for Alzheimer's drugs have failed so far, but all the latest developments seem to represent real progress. But no single treatment is ever likely to halt or reverse the symptoms of the disease because it's caused by several factors. So you're not going to just get a cure-all for it because there are factors like genetics, lifestyle, poor diet, lack of exercise. I, I'd, I'd suppose it's mostly genetic. And then also uh, inflammatory diseases like diabetes and obesity are also a factor. So you've got this, I suppose you have to take, a, again, you have to take a multifaceted approach. But I think we, we're, we're getting there. We're certainly getting close, I think. So next, we're going to play Seeing Through the Myths. And for this segment, Phil and Geth will be competing to find the truth through the myths. So I'm going to give them three statements. Two of them are going to be commonly held beliefs or myths, and one is the truth, and they have to find it. And number one is sharks don't get cancer. Two is dolphins do not sleep. And three is most modern-day brands of lipstick contain fish scales. So yeah, Phil, start us off. God. Sharks don't get cancer. What? <laughs> I don't know why they wouldn't get cancer, particularly. We probably chuck quite a lot of radioactive material in the sea, surely. I mean, you'd think, perhaps, we'd probably have done a bit more research on why they don't get cancer. That's a bit strange. It, it seems I, I don't believe that one, particularly. But I, I'll put it on the side for now. Dolphins don't sleep. That has got to be a myth. Dolphins are mammal. It's got a quite sophisticated brain. Dolphins must sleep. So I don't believe in that one. I think that one's a myth. Most modern-day lipsticks contain fish scales. A lot of things contain uh, animal products that you wouldn't think. For example, some milkshakes contain red food colouring, and it's a natural dye called carmine, um, and that it comes from cochineal beetles. Beetlejuice. <laughs> beetlejuice, beetlejuice, beetlejuice. <laughs> I don't say it three times. No! No, what have you done? I know a lot of things contain animal products that you'd think shouldn't contain them or wouldn't contain them. So... I'm tentatively going for that one. I'm really intrigued by the sharks don't get cancer thing, though, because I want to know why sharks don't get cancer. <laughs> so I don't believe that one. I'm sorry, I don't believe it. Although modern-day lipsticks, if they contain fish scales, probably be more well-known, because I've never heard that one before. No, I'm going to go with the um, I'm going to go with the lipsticks containing fish scales as being the truth. Okay, so Phil's choosing number three. And now, guess your turn. Number one is, is sharks don't get cancer. That is weird, isn't it? I think they must do. I Like... <laughs> I don't think cancer is a specific... Because there's other animals that get cancer. Like, rats get it and out in the wild. So I, th I think that one must be a myth. Dolphins don't sleep like they probably should do. I think that... Cause I've actually heard most modern-day lipsticks contain fish scales. I've actually heard that. But I th So I think that's probably a, a myth. Do like, dolphins are mammals, so they have to breathe air. But if they were to not sleep, might drown. And I'm sure I've heard somewhere that whales don't really sleep either. They rest. They sort of... I'm sure I heard somewhere that that's the case. So I'm actually going to go with two as being the truth. I'm going to say the dolphins don't sleep. They just okay. rest, possibly. I don't know. That's so guess going for number two. At least me, I'm really worried that my little brother's going to be better at this than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, num number two, it's a contentious one, but the answer is true in my, um, in my opinion, right. So I'll go for the first one first because I actually want to talk a little bit about this because I read about it and I thought, thought it was super interesting. So sharks don't get cancer. This one is a myth, but it's not just a weird myth, but it's led to the slaughter of millions of sharks via the shark cartilage industry. It's, it's a very widely believed myth. So 
essentially in the 1970s, this guy called Henry Brem and Judea Forkman, they were at the John Hopkins School of Medicine, and they discovered that cartilage prevented the growth of blood vessels in tissues. And this creation of blood vessels in tissues is called antiogenesis. And this is a key characteristic of malignant tumors, so tumors that spread to other parts of the body. Antiogenesis is a common target for seeking potential cancer therapies. After Bremen Falkman postulated that since cartilage lacks blood vessels, then there must be some sort of enzyme or signaling molecule that prevents these capillaries from forming. After about a decade of research, which found that if you insert a cartilage next to a tumour, it stops them from metastasizing, at least in rabbits, that is. And then in 1996, a guy called Dr. I. William wrote a book called Sharks Don't Get Cancer, How Shark Cartilage Could Save Your Life, and then set up a shark fishing and cartilage pill-making business <laughs> called Lane Labs, and it still makes pills to this day. So sharks have a lot of cartilage. This, uh, this guy called Dr. I. William, he essentially was saying, like, oh, yeah, if you eat this stuff, it has cancer-curing properties using the previous science as, you know, inverted commas, fact, you know. So, and the result of this meant that um, his company and multiple companies like his have been devastating the North American population of sharks. And it was 80% in the last decade of sharks in the... It's like saying, it's like saying, eat this butterfly and you'll be able to fly. Yes, it's... It's ridiculous. And, um... (laughs) Yes, the cartilage companies kill 200,000 sharks every month in US waters alone. And one American company in Costa Rica is estimated to kill 2.8 million sharks per year. And what makes this even worse is the pill has zero effect. The FDA Mm. have done three big trials of it and it shows that shark cartilage does not cure or treat cancer in any way. Way. That's Just amazing. Shark uh, I know a few facts on sharks. Just saying. Go on then. Let's see these facts on sharks. First of all, I don't know if you know, the, the most dangerous shark in the in the world, the most, uh, caused the most human deaths. Okay, so I'm guessing people will think it's great white, but yeah. I'll go for People tiger. will think that. I, I, I'm going to go with one of the big ones that don't have teeth, basking or whale sharks. Okay. Well, you're well off, Phil. <laughs> okay. <laughs> House is actually closer, but um, the great white shark is actually the third. Great white shark's the third. Second is a tiger shark, but actually the the number one most dangerous shark, or you know, causes the most deaths, is actually a oceanic white tip. The reason why they're top of the billing is because when the Titanic sank, oh. they were the ones that arrived on scene. First. God. So they were the ones that actually were the ones killing people and stuff, not anything else. So they've got um, in in the in the history for of recorded deaths or whatever, they've caused the most mainly because of the Titanic. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. That's a nice little tidbit of information there. Yep. Well, that's a little shark shark facts with Geth. Back on with the game. Um, most Bombay brands of lipstick contain fish scales, and this one is true. Yay! <laughs> Thank God for that. But yeah, no, this is true, and it's to achieve the shimmering effect. Ah, okay. How lipstick glistens, yeah. I don't really know if I need to give too much more information on this, but they basically get it from herring scales. (laughs) If you wanted to know which specific fish you were putting on your lips. Do you know if they they have, like, um, information on the side of the boxes to tell you that that's what happens? No, I don't, but they must do. Any any girls that are listening to this podcast who know a bit about lipstick, let us know if it has these warnings on the side of the 
boxes of lipstick. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm be sure interested to know. Vegetarian and vegan will know as well because I'd assume they'd be quite yeah, absolutely, curious about what absolutely. goes into their products. So email us at uh, skepticsnightin at gmail.com. Let us know. Okay, so to finish off the game, number two, dolphins do not sleep. This one is a little bit contentious on how you define sleep, but they don't sleep like humans do. However, they they rest one hemisphere of their brain at a time. So one hemisphere is sleeping, one's um, active. And this essentially means they sleep with one eye open. So one side of their brain rests and the other side is active so the dolphin can um, ensure that can open its blowhole when it comes above water um so yeah you you had you had no you had the right I said, idea said you said yeah but you said <laughs> you didn't say hemispheres did you no so yeah but you, you you had the right line of thinking with well they have to come up and breathe like that would make sense unfortunately they're super weird and they only sleep with half a hemisphere at a time so yeah, well done, Phil. I thought that was a good. Uh, a good I'm so spot relieved. By you. I'm and so relieved. I got it wrong. <laughs> the semantics. Yeah, okay. I didn't say hemisphere, so I got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. So today, for our main topic, we're going to be discussing SETI. What those things you sit on to watch TV? That's not really sciencey, is it? <laughs> no, yeah, it's not something. Is it? <laughs> it's okay. not something. Well, lazy boys. <laughs> No, it's not something you can buy in DFS. SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Uh, that makes be, more sense. Yeah, we're going to be talking <laughs> about the possibility that we are alone in the universe, or the alternative possibility that a big flying saucer is about to blow up the White House. I guess it'll give mm. Will Smith something to do. On the 20th of July, the breakthrough initiatives were announced to the public. Professor Stephen Hawking and Russian tycoon Yuri Milner outlined the plans for the initiative, which will be separated into two parts. Breakthrough Listen and Breakthrough Message. Breakthrough Listen is a 10-year initiative to search for extraterrestrial transmissions utilising two radio telescopes, the Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia and the Parks Observatory in Australia. Breakthrough Message is a discussion around the ethics of sending a message into space. Like the lost seeing stones of Lord of the Rings, you never know who might be watching. There is also one million pound open competition to devise a message to send into space. As Hawking said, in an infinite universe there must be other life. There is no bigger question. It is time to commit to finding the answer. Yeah, I love that. And it's funded by a Russian entrepreneur? Yeah, Yuri Milner. They're going to be using... $100 million, was it? $100 million for the uh, Breakthrough Listen project. And what is that exactly? Uh, The Breakthrough Listen project. Radio telescopes. Yeah, so for example, the the two telescopes they're talking about using, they're not actually set up to listen out for extraterrestrial transmissions. That's not what they're used for. They're only for about 32 hours every year are they actually used for that purpose. I mean, they're capable of doing it, but they're not used for that purpose. What they're looking at doing is providing investment to use those large radio telescopes in Australia and West Virginia to actually look for areas in the sky where they might find just transmissions from extraterrestrials. Yeah, radio um, transmissions, right? Yeah, so yeah, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting project. It's pretty much what SETI are doing. SETI, that's all they do. They yeah. use their radio telescopes to look for extraterrestrial life, but I don't think that their system is a big enough or b kind of there's only one of them i think yeah. you need multiple yeah. sites across the world all trying to yeah. search for extraterrestrial life yeah. and i think yeah. um recently they've opened the biggest radio telescope in the world in china um and i've seen yeah. images of it and it's bloody massive and there's also i think they're currently building one of the largest radio telescopes in australia at the moment and it's one of these i can't remember what they're called i think it's called like an a multi-array 
radio telescope. Yeah. It has lots of little arrays. Yeah. Over, and they're going to build one over a square kilometer. They use like, you know, the stuff you use in concrete floors, like foundations. It's yeah. this kind of like metal crisscrossing wires. They oh, I see. Okay. A ton of them. All right. And then this collects the the uh, the data. I've seen the, uh, you know, you, you've got a large array of, te- of radio telescopes, basically, and they're just, it's loads of the massive field full of these radio telescopes all pointed in the yeah, same direction. Big dishes, yeah. They're trying to get as much information about a single point of sky as they possibly can. Yeah, definitely. Um, so they got these these telescopes and they send off a um, a message, but like what, like Morse coded message through like microwaves or whatever it is. Oh well, this is specifically we're talking about picking up stuff at the moment but yeah there, there, there is oh, okay. a plan to like uh, send a message into space for someone who might be listening like we're listening for something coming in the idea is to send a message for somebody who might be doing the same thing on the other side uh, what's the they, message going to be Elvis isn't dead I heard him on well, the well no this is the thing <laughs> Elvis isn't dead like I said earlier there was, there's a one million pound open competition to devise a message to send in space if you if you come up with a, a, not only a good message to send but also a good way of transmitting it, then you'll win the million pounds, I guess. Yeah, how do you decide what's the best message, yeah. though? It's difficult. I mean, do, do, is, is there a short, snappy message that you can send into space? Well, the thing is, it's like the uh, Voyager space probes. They have golden disks on them, and then on it there's sort of a diagram of our place in space mm-hmm. by using pulsars, mapping out all the pulsars, and then putting us like in the middle with all these <laughs> arrows coming off, because that can give them like distance, and they might be able to figure out the coordination. And there's a picture of a man and a woman like stick figures and then there's also music i think i think it was etched into it like we have you know our record players and then i think it had something to do with numbers on it as well yeah so i think yeah they have um i think they have hello or or some sort of um speech of like 60 languages or something and i think yeah they have also some classical music bach so yeah, so what we send out into space, it, it should be probably be though, because they, they send off these um, CDs. What if uh, whoever gets hold of a CD doesn't have a CD player or ears? <laughs> but, but the, th- <laughs> the thing is, we're assuming that if something does obtain it eventually, that they'll be intelligent enough to figure out the stuff we've put on there. So it's um, like English because they'll never be able to figure it out. I, I did hear about this um, the, uh, this idea of uh, up, just uploading the internet into this message because. <laughs> There's so much information on the internet. You can you can look wherever you want. It's just upload the inf- in- internet as it is at the moment. Send all of that information, and there's just loads of it. Um, it, me- it does mean that they they will have access to all our porn. <laughs> but <laughs> like the idea is, I think I think the idea well, is that there's enough information though, on. There's a lot of hentai tentacle stuff going around as well. So. <laughs> that depends <laughs> if they got tentacles, Gareth. Essentially, what the, the idea is, like the Rosetta Stone had a lot of text on it. If you give a lot of information, they'll be able to work it out and, and work out what it means. The only the only problem with that is um, um, it may be like, you know, in the film Galaxy Quest? Yeah, where they they receive the TV shows from Britain, like the old TV shows. And they but that stuff's already out. out there, isn't it? You know, that stuff's been sent on radio waves and stuff. That's already out there. It's already been transmitted. Fair, it's not very far, is it? Point no, it doesn't get very far, but, you know... Yeah, but it, I wonder how far it's gone. You know, it can only be about 60 light years away. Well, that's enough to get to uh, Alpha Centauri, at least. Yeah, what's that, a a light year away? 4.2. Yes, I mean, it's an interesting point. I think 
Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I mean, with the Rosetta Stone, it was like there were things in three different languages. The only difference is that they kind of knew one of the languages. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know figure mean. out the others from that. I mean, you could probably do an experiment, really. Get some sort of like AI, uh, like machine learning thing. You just pump all of this data into it and see if it can figure out on its own. Like a genetic algorithm like we were talking about last week. Yeah, exactly, yeah. To figure out whether, you know, some sort of species that didn't know anything about the human race could actually could figure learn. out. But the thing is, even if we send a shit ton of information out there, the people receiving it are at least going to know we're not the only ones in the universe. Like, there's other yeah, intelligent life out there. Understand anything the information we give them, at least they'll go, oh, we've been given some sort of information here. So it might be best to send out information of where we are in the universe, so then they can send messages back, possibly? Via pictures, mainly. I'd say this language is a is a, is a weird one, isn't it? Because I mean, you could send me something in about fifty different languages, but if it's not English, I don't know what's gonna. I don't know what it means. Yeah, because but the problem with sending language. the problem with sending pictures is that we can send pictures to each other through the internet, or whatever, because there's a program available to kind of translate those pictures. What if it's a laminated piece of paper, bro? What send <laughs> laminated pieces of paper? <laughs> yeah, yep. at the speed of light. Of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because, I mean, yeah, that, yeah, that'll definitely work, mate. Yeah, that'll definitely work. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem, the thing is, Habs, I mean, you can't talk necessarily about having a discourse. It's just receiving a message because the distances that we're talking about that's travelling, you don't know where these, these civilizations might be. The, the Milky Way is 100,000 light years across. So from us to the other side of the Milky Way, about 75,000 light years, it's a long way. So there'd be no real discourse between civilizations if one of them lived the other side of the galactic core for example no it's just letting uh, you know one know you're here and the other thing is we've only had we've only had like radio for about 120 years and who knows how long we're going to be here what you could end up doing is if we if we do get a, a message how do we know that the civilization is still there they might have died out a long time ago well, it's you just you can never know that they might have died out yeah yeah and so it's just like if they're still there they would have there'll be a different society the one thing and that you can glean from it though yeah the one thing you can glean from it though is that at least you know that there has been life elsewhere at some point yeah. you can't necessarily say that they're still there but you can say that it has happened not just this time but another time and then maybe you can look for more well exactly and then we're, we're talking about our own galaxy here because yeah. it'd be sort of ridiculous from one galaxy to another yeah because andromeda is like two million light years away you know <laughs> yeah so, so if if we do find a message we know there's life within, within this, galaxy. this galaxy yeah and then there are like what a hundred billion galaxies so mm. the chances of other life being out there is pretty high but just not able to really communicate with each other. yeah it's probability exactly. but it's 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 the ability to communicate with each other i mean if you take what we've been able to scan so far in terms of the sky it's pretty much the equivalent of taking a glass dipping it in the sea and that is the grand total of what we've, of what we've searched for so far oh yeah totally yeah there's so oh, much yeah, yeah. out there to look for as computational power increases and as sophisticated technology increases we can start looking more and more faster and faster at, at different areas of the sky and i think is it moore's law no moore's the, law yeah well moore's law is technology that technology that speed doubles every 18 months 
Exactly. So the idea of that is that your ability to search doubles every 18th month because you can process twice as much information every 18th months. So, so every 18 months, you're able to look for twice as much as you could 18 months ago. So with that... Radio technology is getting better. Our yeah, absolutely, yeah. Our imaging, like the second Hubble, that's going to be released in a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be interesting. It has such a higher resolution quality of image than Mm. Hubble does. So, how's what's the Drake equation? So, the Drake equation is probabilistic argument to estimate the number of active communicative extraterrestrial civilizations in the Milky Way. So there's this uh, guy called Frank Drake who wrote the equation in 1961 for the purpose of quantifying the number of these possible civilizations. Okay, so there there are many variables to the Drake equation. So it starts off with the average rate of star formation in our galaxy and then the fraction of those stars with planets, then the average number of planets that could potentially support life. Then there's the fraction of planets which could support life that actually develops life at some point. The fraction of planets with life that actually go on to develop intelligent life, and then the fraction of civilizations that develop a technology that releases detectable signs of their existence into space, and finally, the length of time for which such civilizations release detectable signals into space. It uses all of these variables together. Yes. (laughs) And then that should come up with a number of how many uh, civilizations there should be in our galaxy. But then, yeah, three, yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is playing on a lot of assumptions. You know, we're we're taking a lot of assumptions into account here. We know now that the galaxy is not uniform. For example, you're not going to get uh, solar systems exactly like our solar system. There are a bunch of binary systems. Uh, if you get towards the galactic core, there's loads of systems with five stars in them, for example, you can you can get. So, yeah, we look at the number of stars, say, in our galaxy, but you've got to temper that because, I want to say geographically, things are different. So, depending on your location, things are quite different. So, you'll have these solar systems, but they won't necessarily have rocky bodies in the inner solar system. Some of them might have a large gas giant. Some of them might have a brown dwarf. Uh, so, it'd be a binary system. So, there's a lot of complexity so you could just you can't necessarily stick it all the variables into an equation expect that to come out with an actual answer because because of all this complexity it increases the variable the number of variables that there actually are so the drake equation sounds good but in reality the number of planets that we're looking for that are going to fit those criteria are diminished because of the complexity of the galaxy itself and the thing is no absolutely other galaxies as well yeah the thing is we haven't um you know n number of one we have one example of life being on a planet. So even if we found a solar system with a planet that was exactly like Earth, the star exactly like the Sun, the whole entire solar system was the same, it has a Jupiter, it has a Saturn or whatever, we still don't know whether that planet would inhabit life because we don't know how hard it is to produce life organically because it's only yeah, happened you've once got have, you've got to have those organisms to work in a certain way to create the life like we know it exactly as far as we know at some point in history there was some sort of single single cell life form and then all of life sprung from that as far as we know there weren't multiple starts to life there was just this one single organism that produced all of life so it's very hard to tell whether that's easy to do whether you yeah. can rep- that, I mean, that can actually probability-wise happen somewhere else. Having said that, if you look at the history of the Earth, um, for at least three quarters of the Earth's history, there's been life on Earth. Granted, it was all single, multi, uh, single-celled organisms. 
no multicellular organisms for the majority of it. About three billion years into the Earth's past, there's life. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that came from one single-celled organism. So we just don't know how pro- uh, how likely it is that that would be created somewhere else. And what about because panspermia? Our example. Well, that's possible. Yeah, I mean there there are theories that that could occur. I mean, it's quite, I mean, I think panspermia is quite hard. First of all, you'd have to have a planet with life on it. Then you'd need some sort of collision event, which would kind of spring some sort of bacteria up into space on some sort of space debris. And then that bacteria would have to lay dormant until it hit another planet or something. You know? Yeah, I know what you mean. The probability, I, I'm not sure on that part, but yeah. I think they've started looking for planets that have more pollution than you would expect. Yeah. So that's how they're going to be looking for civilized, uh, intelligent life as well. Civilization, yeah. yeah, is looking towards you know, you know, humans. We've created this you know greenhouse effect on the planet more than it should be, and then we've thought, wait a minute, intelligent civilizations may have the same thing. You know, depends where they're releasing they're, all these. Depends if they're more intelligent than us and create a way not to have it to happen. Maybe a more intelligent civilization would solve it as soon as they find out rather than ignoring it the, an interesting idea that I, I, I thought about um, bringing us back to the last podcast is the idea of artificial intelligence would it be more likely that any intelligent life that we discover would be machine rather than biological that's fascinating because it's probably more idea. it's more likely to persist they're more likely to survive a longer time what you say is basically like um these other uh, another civilization <clears throat> has created the machine thing and then the machines are taken over the world and wiped them out and, and that's what's all, all that's left so like basically uh, we could be overtaken by machines if we create them. yeah if that's what but i find, think the problem with on a, some of the planet just machines it means do not make robots but the, uh, <laughs> the with, yeah. i think the problem with that theory is i think animal evolution is a lot stronger than machine evolution certainly you need you need an intelligent enough biological machine to create a sentient mechanical machine certainly but if you have something that's gone on for long enough it's able to do it then once that mechanical machine consciousness is created it is more suited to persist for longer and so for example it could go out and it it could go out and uh, like what do we use to go and explore mars use robots so they don't have to worry about the conditions on various planets they can go off they can so spread themselves quite easily but the thing is the that we didn't send out there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's signals more of that. My point is that, like, the biggest problem that we've got for searching for extraterrestrial life is the fact that we've no idea how fleeting intelligent life can be. If we look at the challenges that we have as an intelligent species, we've thought of all the different ways that we could, that our uh, society and civilization could end. Type of life that is most likely to survive the longest would be a machine type consciousness which more robust and able to able to adapt easily to changes in the atmosphere because they haven't evolved to a niche environment we we give intelligence as to like us it doesn't necessarily mean that we are intelligent just that that's the only thing we've got to play it upon there could be other um, life forms out there that are far more intelligent than we are and make us look like a crap absolutely yeah i'm not saying that i'm just saying that um the, the likelihood it is that that sort of intelligence will be machine rather than human because of the time that it's it's been given that's because to actually reach aspect. that sort of intelligence it's the time aspect i'm talking about it's not a bad idea film it now we come to the part of the show that I call What's the Cost? This week I'm going to be giving Gethin and Haves uh, three items. They have to tell me which is the most expensive and which is 
the least expensive. There's a sort of theme today, kind of geography-ish. We'll see how you do. And the first item is cost of construction of the Halley Research Station Antarctica. The second one is cost of the development of a global circulation model. The final one is the cost of the Deep Sea Challenger, which is the submarine that James Cameron used to get to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Pass, do you want to go first? <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so the first one was Haley Research Center in Antarctica. I think that station, I think multiple countries run off that station. Uh, this one's a uh, UK station. Oh, that's the UK station. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they have to live in Antarctica over the summer and winter, I think. But a fair amount of technology must have to go into that. Also, the living costs. You've got a living cost for maybe like 100 scientists, 24-7. No, you know, much less than that. Days. Is it? Uh, no, yeah. Um, because because uh, I applied uh, for a British Antarctic survey job to actually go to the Halley Research sa- uh, Station in Antarctica for 18 months. The, the number of people I have in the winter is about 16, 17 people, uh, rising to about 70 about the summer. in the summer. Okay, so, okay. So, but but just to so let you know, this is this is the, this isn't the running cost of it. This is the construction cost I'm talking oh, about. Oh, okay. That's construction cost and getting it there. It's a mobile okay. research st- uh, station in Antarctica. Global circulation model. You'd you'd have a lot of people working on that, and you'd have to either rent or own a supercomputer to crunch the numbers. Okay, deep sea Voyager. I know that takes a lot of technology. It's very hard to do, and not many people have gone down that deep. Construction costs. This is a tough one, mate. I don't think it costs that much. For the Haley Research Center. So I'm going to put that at the bottom. Deep Sea Challenger. I mean, there's a lot of technology in that. Uh, the global circulation model. Because I don't know whether they own the supercomputer. And that would put the price up instantly or rented it. And the global circulation so, models have the supercluster. That could still be quite a lot. Because I know there's just a lot of information going in there. And you'd need a lot of people to create it. I just don't see it being more than the Deep Sea Challenger. For the highest, I'm going to go for the Deep Sea Earth Challenger. Second most expensive global circulation module. The lowest, the Haley Research Center. Okay. Kath? Um, I don't actually know anything about the Haley Research Center and I don't know about the global model, to be honest with you. But I do know that building a submarine costs a lot of money <laughs> um and it's, deep sea challenger especially i think was one of the more expensive oh, i can only assume i mean it's just a model <laughs> the global circulation model now i don't know what that means but my experience of building models they're not very expensive um, it's not it's not a model like well, like, uh, a, like a model aircraft, an airfix <laughs> It's a bit more complicated than that. I assumed it probably would be. Like I said, I don't know anything about it. Actually, from listening to what Havs uh, has just said about the Antarctic thing, you you mentioned mobile, mm-hmm. which means that they built it and then had to get it out there. I'm assuming there's a cost in that. It also moves around on the ice sheet as well. <sighs> it's a research centre. There's a lot of stuff there. Okay, I'm going to go same one as Havs for most expensive, the... Um, Challenger. Um, I'm going to say the research centre is second, and then the model uh, as the cheapest. So uh, you're both going for the Deep Sea Challenger as the most expensive. Uh, Havs, you're going for the uh, Halley Research Station as the cheapest, and Geth, you're going for the Global Circulation Model as the cheapest, yeah? Yes. Yep. I've got to start making these easier, because you're both wrong again. <laughs> uh-huh. So um, I'm just going to go through them in the order that I presented them in. So the Halley Research Station in Antarctica is a mobile research station. Uh, They look at 
atmospheric changes, weather, that sort of thing. And the total cost of construction was uh, 40 million US dollars or 26 million pounds. Um, and that was the middle one. Got that bit right. The development of global circulation model is the most expensive at 100 million uh, US dollars plus. Close. So the the idea here is that when we're talking about the development of a global circulation model, so it's a, it's a model that uh, predicts the global average temperature uh, of the Earth. So yeah, like Geth says, it's only a model, but you have to factor in the man hours and the time it takes to actually develop that model to make it actually usable. The article I read that gave me this information basically was saying that it would take 10 years or so to actually develop a global climate model uh, accurately enough, with 50 or so people working on it, uh, a scientist like salary. You've also got the cost of replacing your supercluster every few years because of the advancements in, in processor speed. For the period of time that it takes to, to develop a model like that, it actually takes it, a lot of money to make cumulatively. So the Deep Sea Challenger, which is the least expensive, it's the cheapest of these items, only cost 8 million US dollars to build. So that's it. That's the end of our podcast. Thank you very much to uh, Dave Havard and our special guest tonight, Gethy Morris. You're very welcome. Yes. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, mate. It's been good, it's nice to uh, have good you tonight. On. Yeah, good to have you on. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, no problem. I loved your shark information. Yeah, that's <laughs> only information I do have. No, yeah, it's been it's been good fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Geth. Thanks, thanks for coming on. So we are on multiple social platforms, so you can follow us on Facebook at Skeptics Night In or Twitter at Skeptics underscore NI, or you can follow us on iTunes and download us for your car journey on your way to work. Again, Skeptics Night In. And of course, you can catch up with our podcast or our blog on SkepticsNightIn.com. And if you have any queries or you want to challenge us on something or you want to suggest something for us to talk about, please email us at skepticsnightin at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. We've been a Skeptics Night In.